0: For joining us, this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fishery science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Pod. If you're the generous sort, you can be like Ben, Janet, Robin, Garrett, John, and Jerry, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you're able to support the show with either a recurring or a one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase fisheries pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store, so go check it out. Dr. Kevin Feldheim is the A. Watson III manager of the Pritzker Laboratory for Molecular Systematics and Evolution at the Field Museum in Chicago, Illinois. His research focuses on inferring the mating system and population biology of sharks using genetic markers, although he is broadly interested in many organisms. He received a bachelor's and master's from the University of Illinois at Champaign Urbana and his PhD from the University of Illinois at Chicago, working under doctors Mary Ashley and Samuel Gruber. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So I think we'll start with an easy one. Um, when did your interest in sharks begin?
1: Yeah, uh, of course, you know, I think most scientists get this question a lot. And the story I tell, um, is that when I was uh, very young, uh, I was actually alive when the movie Jaws came out and that kind of sparked my interest in sharks. So my parents didn't let me see the movie, which was probably good parenting, but we lived in Southern California at the time near the beach. And so I think that kind of got me interested in sharks in general. So growing up, I always had an interest but you know, we moved back to the Midwest when I was like seven or eight, and so you know there weren't a lot of opportunities to you know even interact with the ocean or with sharks in general. But I just kind of kept that interest. And then when I was an undergrad at University of Illinois, uh, one professor allowed me to do an independent research study. Uh, his name was Thomas Frazetta, and basically um, do a, a literature search on why sharks don't get cancer. Um, they do, but it's extremely rare. Um, uh, So that kind of kept my interest going. And then once I finished undergrad, I still had the desire to do something with the ocean. So I wanted to study marine biology. And so I applied to a bunch of of programs. I got into a few, but I had my heart set on University of Miami under Dr. Sonny Gruber. And at the time, I didn't know this at the time, but at the time, he basically was told to get his affairs in order. He was going to die of cancer. I mean, the the doctors basically told him he was going to die. And of course, I didn't know that, but he wasn't accepting students. And so I ended up, I kind of floundered for a little while. I took a semester off, didn't really know what I was going to do. And then... um, I ended up going back to Champaign for for a master's under uh, Dr. Jeff Connor, and that really helped me kind of figure out how to be a good graduate student and a good scientist. And at the time when I was doing my master's, I took a course in conservation genetics with Dr. Ken Page, and that really sparked my interest in using DNA to basically uh, for conservation efforts. And then when I was doing my Ph.D. with Mary Ashley, she gave me the freedom to kind of go out and find a shark project, um, which was fantastic. I mean, having that freedom was, was great. You know, she didn't say, look, we're going to work on this for your Ph.D. She gave me the freedom to do, you know, to find this project. And so I emailed a bunch of professors and, of course, Dr. Gruber survived cancer. And, um, you know, he had this field station in the Bahamas and he had just collected several hundred shark samples. Uh, Lemon sharks. And he was looking for a geneticist. And, you know, he gave me the opportunity to to work with him. And we've been collaborating, or I've been collaborating with folks at Bimini ever since.
0: Thank you for that really Really? useful timeline, because we're going to get back to, I think, all the parts of it. (laughs) But first, um, I wanted to mention that Your master's research wasn't directly related to marine science, correct?
1: No, not at all. Not at all. In fact, I really didn't know. So I, you know, I was, I was very naive um, when I, when I was younger and I didn't really know what uh, even I could do with a biology degree. So I just kept going back to school. I'd just been really lucky. So my master's was, uh, as I mentioned with, with Jeff Connor and he was studying you know, he was, he was studying plants and basically my master's was plant pollinator interactions. So how bees reacted to brassica plants exposed to, uh, elevated ultraviolet light. So it was, it was interesting. Um, you know, I, I got to work in an apiary. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I got to really kind of hone my skills as a scientist and that really, you know, that time, in his lab, really helped me become a better scientist. And him and, and, and his graduate students really kind of helped me along.
0: That's awesome. I like to point out things that might not be as linear as people would expect in uh, fisheries scientists' careers through this podcast. I think it's important that younger researchers understand that Not everything goes in a straight line, even though it kind of looks that way on people's CVs and resumes.
1: Yeah. And, you know, another thing I want to point out related to that is I biology was actually my worst subject in school. So it was my worst subject in high school. It was my worst subject in college. So I don't know if I enjoyed the challenge or I mean, the point is just because you're not great in something doesn't mean you can't be successful in it. Not to say I'm this hugely successful scientist, but but, <laughs> <laughs> but I have been in the good. field for, for for quite a long time, so you know I'd like to think that maybe there's a little bit of success there. but the point is is that you know just because you struggle in something doesn't mean you can't eventually succeed in it.
0: I love that you mentioned earlier that you took a class in was it conservation genetics, yes. Can you talk a bit about what that is and what kind of applications are possible and kind of what you love about it?
1: Sure, sure. So conservation genetics, I mean, broadly speaking, you know, it's using genetics and genetic data to um, find ways to conserve biodiversity, right? So whether that's, you know, new species discovery using DNA, um, making conservation priorities based on you know the genetic diversity of a uh, of a population. <clears throat> Excuse me. Whether that's um, you know inferring the mating system of uh, certain species. So so essentially using DNA to try to conserve either you know whole whole biota, um, individual species, populations, whatever that may be. So it's a very it's a very broad field, um, but it's essentially you know. Just that using DNA to conserve organisms and biodiversity.
0: Very cool. So with that little bit of background, then we can kind of get into your PhD research with the Bimini Shark Lab. Would it be accurate to say that during your PhD you kind of became the 23andMe of lemon sharks?
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I've also called myself the Moripovich of sharks. <laughs> yep. Which you know I don't know. I always age myself when I talk about uh, pop culture, but, you know, Moripovich Povich is, you know, you are not the father. So it's basically using paternity tests on sharks. Right. So, so yeah. So one, one of the great things about Bimini is you can go out and you can sample dozens, hundreds of, of lemon sharks within really the matter of, of a few weeks. So that's what, that's one of the things that makes Bimini such a unique place to study sharks, particularly lemon sharks. I mean, you know, there's this almost closed population of baby lemon sharks that use this nursery for the first several years of their life. Um, Once they get bigger, of course, they venture to other islands um, near the Bahamas. Uh, And that's, you know, that's one thing that we're interested in using DNA to kind of look at gene flow between different nurseries. Although certainly we focus, Um, at Bimini. And my focus for my PhD, um, which uh, basically sampled Bimini lemon sharks from 1995 to 2000 and basically looking at the genetic structure of of the the population within Bimini and then also inferring what individual females are doing at Bimini. So for example, um, we use DNA to uh, group baby lemon sharks into sibling groups. And from the genotypes of the babies, without going into like all the nitty gritty details, we're essentially able to reconstruct the genotypes of the mothers. Some of the fathers, but but more so the mothers. Um, And then we can tell what individual adult female lemon sharks are doing at How
0: How long have you been analyzing this population?
1: So since 1995 and up through the present, so, you know, the, the, the folks at Bimini, so once, once I stopped going to Bimini, which was um, essentially the year 2000, uh, you know, folks are still there. It's still an active field station. Um, they've been collecting the, the young of the year and juvenile lemon sharks since 1995. So we have this enormous data set, this enormous pedigree of lemon sharks that have been collected since then.
0: Do you have any notable findings over that incredibly long time? Oh,
1: now? oh well, I think they're notable and incredible. Um, hopefully, other folks will find them uh, pretty interesting as well. So, one of the things we discovered early on was um, polyandry by females. So, female lemon sharks tend to mate with multiple males for their litter. Um, And that was one of the first, I think maybe it was even the first uh, discovery of polyandry in any shark species. And that's been found really across the board. Most female sharks um, uh, behave that way. So most female sharks will mate with multiple males for their litters. There are some exceptions to that, of course, um, but for the most part, we find that female sharks tend to mate with multiple males. So that's one thing we found. Um, Another thing, uh, Dr. Ruber really thought that this species had a two-year reproductive cycle, where a female would come into the Bimini Lagoon and give birth, and then basically take a year to recoup the resources to become uh, pregnant again and deliver pups again. And we actually found that genetically too. So females were coming back to this island to give birth to their uh, their litters, and they typically did that on a two-year cycle. Now, that was one of our early studies. We basically characterized that I forgot how many females, maybe a dozen females were coming back on this two-year cycle to Bimini to give birth to their young. And we were finding that in, in, in multiple females over the years. And so we thought that since these females were actually philopatric, so basically philopatry is the act of coming back to a certain location, either for birth or for mating or, or, or what have you. Um, since some of these females were philopatric to Bimini, we thought that maybe these females were actually born at Bimini. So much like salmon go back to their natal stream to to lay eggs, we thought that perhaps these females were born at Bimini, left Bimini um, eventually, and once they uh, became reproductively mature, came back to Bimini to give birth to their own young. And we actually eventually found that. So I forgot how many we're up to, I think we're up to nine females where uh, we know that they were born at Bimini, and have eventually, once they've reached maturity, come back to Bimini to give birth. Now, the really cool thing is is that only with you know these large data sets can we start to answer some of these really interesting questions because at least this species re- reaches reproductive maturity at around 14 or 15 years of age. And so you know, we only found this out, you know after a couple decades of studying this this population at Bimini. and that was really that kind of aha moment. Um, you know, you don't get a ton of those in science because a lot of it is just, you know, just building data over years and years. But that aha moment when we actually found what's called natal philopatry the act of returning to your birthplace to give birth to your young. Um, that was a really cool moment in my career. And, and, you know, I'm really that's one of the findings that that I look back and I'm like, wow, that was really that was really cool that we found that.
0: That is a really incredible finding all of the things that you said, I understand that lemon sharks are a pretty well-studied species um, because of the shark lab. So your contribution to all of shark science just through this one lab is pretty incredible.
1: You know, and what I what I like to say is, I'm I'm just the you know the geneticist be, behind these studies. It takes hundreds and hundreds of people that actually contribute to that study. So. You know, in fact, I was I was um, giving a talk. I forgot, but I was giving a talk to to a, to a high school, and I just showed that one slide of natal phylopatry, and I said, you know, that slide, which took me I don't know twenty seconds to present, actually took twenty years and hundreds of people to contribute to. So you know that that little blurb, actually, you know, I want people to understand how much work that actually took, and it's just been, yeah, the Shark Lab is really. Just a remarkable place. It truly is. And you know, uh, Dr. Gruber and now the current director, Matt Smuckle, just have been really amazing in their contributions to shark science. It's really just really just an incredible place.
0: I'm looking forward to hopefully contributing <laughs> a little bit pretty soon here with Absolutely. my own yeah. stingray research. But Absolutely. yeah, it's it is a huge body of work and I think um, it's important to kind of plug the lab a little bit because that long-term data set would not have been possible if not for that long-term effort by the presidents and you know all the staff and volunteers and PIs who have gone through that lab over the last three decades or so
1: (laughs) for sure. sure. And then another thing I like to to point out um, from those studies is that science is a, is a highly collaborative field, right? there's just absolutely zero chance. I would have been able to do, you know, 99% of this stuff on on my own. There's just no way I could have done really any of it with all, without all of the collaborators and, and great people that I've met along the way.
0: And then just a couple random questions about lemon sharks. Um, has this study given insight into maybe how long they live or how long that they can reproduce at least?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So we have, we have minimum ages of, of how long they can live. Um, And of course, estimates from uh, growth rates, but we just, you know, we just don't know, we just don't know those things yet. Right. So we have some examples of some females that Started giving birth at the beginning of of, of the study, and um, we actually caught some two year olds in 1995. So we know that some females started giving birth at Bimini at 1993, and they continue to give birth today. So that's however many years, 30, 30 years. Wow, that's a long time. Um, so you know that's a thirty year reproductive lifespan for some of these females. And so you know, again, we don't know that for any shark species we don't know how long females can remain reproductively active we don't know how long most species can live we have estimates of course but we don't have individuals where we've tagged as newborns and have seen them throughout the course of their entire life and again and i keep stressing this these long-term studies only with these long-term studies can we get these definitive answers and so that's why you know places like the shark lab are just Vital to bio and, and not just in marine science in, in in all fields of science that these you know these long term field stations are are vital to answer some of these really interesting questions
0: yeah that is really interesting. I'm just thinking about how how rare it is that you know one young shark lives to maturity and then dies of old age it probably happens quite rarely, so you know the likelihood of getting that one shark and observing it throughout its life. It's pretty incredible that these kinds of labs offer the chance of seeing that um, by observing that same population for, you know, many, many years.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Fingers
0: crossed that, you know, they get to keep doing that.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Um, So since completing your PhD, you've expanded your research beyond the lemon sharks of Bimini. Can you talk about other species that you've studied since then?
1: Sure. Sure. So, um, so again, this is all, this is all due to incredible collaborators, right? So, um, the small tooth sawfish is actually a type of ray that is, uh, um, found in, in Florida and a couple strongholds in, in Florida, uh, Charlotte Bay on the west coast of Florida and the Everglades National Park. So um, thanks to many, many collaborators that have uh, um, sampled these guys, we've we've done very similar things in these two areas that we've done at Bimini. So basically looking at the long-term mating system, looking at uh, how many females are contributing to, to these populations. Um, and so we found very similar things. These females are coming back. They tend to come back on a two-year cycle. Um, they don't. They do mate by polyandry, but not as as frequently as the lemon sharks. So in the lemon sharks, we see about eighty-five percent of all the litters are due to multiple mating by females. In sawfish, it's only about twenty percent, twenty-five percent. One idea for that is maybe because the population is is, is much lower. So. We think that the density of the adult sawfish is just much less than the density of, of, of lemon sharks. Again, we don't know that for a fact, but we we think that that's the case, um, mainly because the, the sawfish have been um, almost wiped out since the mid-1950s. So uh, a study led by, I believe it was Simfendorfer, he found that only about 1% to 5% of the current population remains compared to what it was in the 1950s and so um if folks don't know what a, a, a sawfish is they have this crazy rostrum that that has these rostral teeth and their teeth get tangled up in in fishing gear um in gill nets, and so you know unfortunately they were they were nearly wiped out in the mid to late 1900s <clears throat> of course they're protected now and they seem to be making a comeback which is um really a, a, a great thing. They seem to be expanding their nursery areas, um, which again is a very important thing. Um, one thing that was a really uh, interesting find, so Andrew Fields did a lot of this work for his PhD. He was a he was a student of Damien Chapman at the time. And Andrew found uh, what he thought was this really cool and novel finding in some of the sawfish. He actually found that A few individuals were completely homozygous at these microsatellite loci that we were analyzing. And without going into too much details, an individual that's all homozygous indicates that they're the result of parthenogenesis, which, you know, in a normally sexually reproducing species would be unheard of. Um, And so Damien and I were like, "That, that can't be true. There's no way that that's right. And so we actually developed more genetic markers and Andrew used uh, those, those additional gen- genetic markers and found again homozygosity at all these markers. And so Andrew was right and Damien and I were wrong and, and it actually was a case of parthenogenesis. So he found that three female sawfish um gave birth by parthenogenesis in these these florida sawfish and the idea the kind of the the story we kind of told for when we went to publish is that you know densities are so low that these females couldn't find mates um for those particular years basically fell back on you know this last discharge of passing on their genes by parthenogenesis What's really interesting for these, you know, we, we have a, a, a long-term pedigree for these sawfish just like we do for the lemon sharks at Bimini, and we found that these three females actually came back later in the study and gave birth by sexual reproduction. So we don't, we don't really know what the trigger is for parthenogenesis. Is it hormonal? Is it, you know, what actually kicks in where these females are kind of using parthenogenesis as this last-ditch effort? Um, but we did find it in, in this population of sawfish, which was really, um, you know, a really, really cool finding.
0: That's, that's really incredible. Actually. I, I had no idea that that was possible.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like something that's been observed multiple times.
1: Yeah. So it's, 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 it's actually relatively common in aquarium settings. So, uh, you know, a, a lot of aquarists have found that once. Males are removed from a habitat that females just continue to give birth and it's due to parthenogenesis. So, you know, a lot of aquariums now are kind of trying to figure out why that is and, and, and when that kicks in and yeah, it's really it's really an amazing thing.
0: Wait till Jurassic Park hears about this. They're <laughs> gonna make like seven more movies. Right. Right. <laughs> so I also saw that you're working on A zebra shark project?
1: Yes. So this is a relatively new project. This is this, it's called STAR and it stands for, oh boy, Stegostoma Tigrinium Augmentation and Recovery Plan. So essentially it's trying to reintroduce zebra sharks back into parts of Indonesia where it's essentially been wiped out. And it's a huge collaboration with many aquariums, many government agencies. Um, many NGOs as well. And it's essentially um, what my part is, of course, I'm the the geneticist or one of the geneticists on the project. And we're just trying to ensure that the individuals that are reintroduced back into the population have enough genetic diversity to kind of uh, carry the population forward, right? So the idea is that with you know, if you don't have a lot of genetic diversity, if the environment changes and, and you know, the, the, the genetics of the animals can't deal with the changing environment, well, perhaps they go extinct because of that. So we're just trying to ensure there's enough genetic diversity of the individuals being reintroduced um, uh, to parts of Indonesia. Now, one really interesting thing we're finding is that even though this species is very prolific um, in human care, you know, females can lay up to 40 eggs every year, a lot of these eggs are being produced by parthenogenesis. And that obviously is a problem when we're trying to maintain an, uh, genetic diversity um, because these these parthenotes, a parthenote is simply an offspring uh, produced by parthenogenesis. These parthenotes are, at least in, in all the shark species that we've seen so far, are homozygous across the board. And, you know, and there's something in genetics called the expression of lethal recessives. And that means that, that some traits that are normally masked in the heterozygous condition are expressed in the homozygous condition and can lead to the demise of that individual. And so, um, you know, a study just came out by uh, Lance Adams and some of his colleagues. Lance is, is the, the, the vet at the Aquarium of the Pacific in Long Beach, and he's done some really cool work on this species, and basically, um, uh his paper found that these parthenotes just don't do well they don't survive um, for more than uh, a handful of months they don't um, they don't put on weight like their heterozygous counterparts they don't uh, grow like their heterozygous counterparts so this is this is a problem when we're trying to reintroduce the species back in the wild that if a lot of these, Offspring are the results of parthenogenesis. That's a problem. So um, again, Lance and some colleagues are trying to develop some artificial insemination protocols. Uh, this is a, a, a study with uh, Dr. Jen Wiffles and Dr. Katie Lyons. Um, as well. And they've done some really cool work with artificial insemination with this species, trying to uh, not only increase the amount of genetic diversity, but also trying to overcome this uh, parthenogenesis issue in the species. Yeah. I
0: kind of wondered if there was any downside to this, you know, as far as like being able to reproduce later on in life or that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we know from one species, um, the white-spotted bamboo shark. So that, that's another species that's really prolific in captivity, um, also gives birth by parthenogenesis. There's one study that found that one of the parthenotes actually went on to um, reproduce, I believe also by parthenogenesis as well. So we know that sometimes they're at least capable of reaching maturity, but we have not seen that yet for the zebra shark. We've seen it in the white-spotted bamboo shark, just not yet in the zebra shark. However, we even even if that does, is the case where you know one or two do survive to uh sexual maturity, we still want to ensure that you know we're releasing heterozygous individuals back into the population.
0: Are all of the homozygous individuals um female?
1: Yes. Yes. So there was a study that came out, ooh, I don't remember the year, but Basically, they looked at karyotypes of several different elasmobranch species, and they hypothesized that um, uh, elasmobranks have an XX XY sex determination system like mammals do. And so, you know, when when these all homozygous individuals are born, um, they're they're female because a YY is not uh, a viable. Um, a viable individual. So only they're only XX individuals that are produced in uh, through parthenogenesis. And so that actually led support to the XX XY sex determination system.
0: Very interesting. I didn't. Yeah. I had never heard of this before. I didn't realize that it was common in elasmobranchs for this to happen.
1: So. Yeah. So, and, and again, it, it's, it's mainly been found in an aquarium setting. I mean, we think that, I mean, obviously it's possible that it occurs in the wild. Um, but again, we think it's probably just a last-ditch effort by these females to, you know, eventually pass on their genes. Um, we just don't know how common it is. But of course, now people are looking for it because if they find individuals that are homozygous and all these loci, you know, one of the main explanations for it is parthenogenesis.
0: And that sounds like one of the huge benefits of genetic sampling.
1: Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. It's expanded, I think. Yeah. At least...
0: It sounds like it. From what I know, the the Bimini Shark Lab was kind of taking these DNA samples before they knew what to do with them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it, people it, it, know what to do with them. So yeah, I bet more yeah. places are, you know, going out and taking these these tissue samples and
1: absolutely, you know, and these, these samples and absolutely. Them. absolutely. So and I I think that's kind of standard now. I think most folks, um, you know, even if they don't have plans to. Uh, do a genetic study. It's it's always good to have that tissue database because, you know, you can hook up with a geneticist later and uh, analyze those samples. So yeah, I highly encourage all you folks out there listening. If you're not collecting genetic samples, please please do.
0: It's as easy as a fin clip, right?
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Relatively non-invasive.
0: Um. So what is it like? I know you're located in Chicago. What's it like studying marine species from the Midwest? Yeah, you're a across the street at Shedd Aquarium.
1: Yeah, it's funny because most um, most people, when I say it's study sharks, just assume that I work at the Shedd Aquarium. But being a geneticist, you know, you can do you can do this work from really anywhere. You just need need the great collaborators in the field that will take a little fin and and send it to me. So I was uh, I was recently in the field with. um, Steve Kessel from the, from the shed. And on that trip was uh, Dean Grubbs, who's just really an incredible field biologist. And he, uh, a lot of my uh, sawfish samples come from Dean. And I think Dean told me, you know, you probably have handled more sawfish individuals than anyone, but have yet to see a sawfish. So I've never actually seen a live sawfish in the wild, but I have, I don't know how many samples we have now, several hundred of these samples. So it's, you know, you can really do this work from anywhere. You just need the ability to go out and, and collect the samples or have people send you the samples.
0: So what does a day look like for you then, a day in the lab?
1: Yeah, that's, you know, that's one of the things that I really love about being a scientist is you you don't have the same, you don't have the same day, you don't have the same week. You know, it, it really just kind of depends on what's going on in a particular week. So a lot of what we do here in the lab is training. Uh, So we have a lot of, you know, new users that that come in and want to learn the techniques. So we do a lot of training. Um, I spent a lot of training last week, for example. This week I'm doing a lot of uh, PCRs and a lot of setting up of sequencing reactions. So it just kind of depends on the week, which is really, you know, a lot of it can be repetitive, but as I mentioned before, a lot of the kind of cool findings comes from a, a lot of collecting data. So it just kind of depends on the week. There's a lot of lab work. There's a lot of writing. There's a lot of analysis. And then every once in a while, I get to do a cool podcast.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, that is all I have for you as far as general questions. We're going to move on to the final five, which is a set of questions that we ask every guest that comes on the show. Okay. All right. So the first question is, what's your favorite fish?
1: Well, I mean, it's got to be the lemon shark, I and mean, that's that's the one that um, you know. The lemon shark is just such a such a beautiful animal, such a cool animal. Um, and of course, I've I've handled more lemon sharks than than any other species, so def, definitely the lemon shark.
0: They are charismatic for sure,
1: Very especially so. when they're babies. Oh so yeah.
0: What's your favorite memory from your career so far? <sighs>
1: oh man that's a really good one um i think so when i first hooked up with dr gruber he invited my advisor mary and i down to the, the lab and seeing the first shark was definitely my um, one of the coolest memories i'll never forget that and it was uh you know the 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 folks at the shark lab had sent a long line to do some sampling and, you know, I think we checked it at like 2 a.m. And so, you know, I was tired, but the adrenaline was just had just kicked in. And, you know, Dr. Gruber just kept I was so excited. My job was to hold the the light. And Gruber kept kept saying, Kev, the light, the light. Because i was so excited. I really wasn't focused on what I was doing. But, yeah, that was a that's a great memory. So seeing my first shark was really just amazing.
0: Was that the first shark that you had ever seen in the in the ocean, I should say.
1: In the yeah, in the ocean for sure. Yes.
0: What kind of shark was it?
1: It was a lemon shark. It was a subadult lemon shark.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, those those night long lines are really something.
1: Yeah, yeah, really amazing. Spooky yet really cool. You know, you're kind of going along and you you don't know what's going to be pulled up on the on the line. It's just yeah, really. Even thinking about it now, I still get like the adren- adrenaline rush.
0: Yeah, and in a remote location like Bimini, it's just so dark.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. Right.
0: I, I can't imagine being the person driving during that.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: So what is your dream job or your dream location?
1: Man, you know, when I was when I was doing my PhD, I so I grew up in Chicago. So I'm highly biased towards Chicago. I I mean, it's it it's it's my home. So, when I was doing my PhD, I said my dream job would be a research position in Chicago. So I think I have my dream job. It's really, I mean, I've been so fortunate in my career, like the ability to study sharks from Chicago, the ability to stay in Chicago. My wife is also from Chicago. So, you know, we both have roots here. And, you know, when I told my friends that I got a job in Chicago, you know, who are not biologists, um, they were like, yeah, you got a job. So what? And I'm like, no. I got a job where I want to live. You don't understand. So to actually get a job in academia where you want to live is so incredibly lucky. So I've just been even talking about it now. I I just I can't believe it happened. It's just it's amazing. It was amazingly lucky. Really, truly, truly. So yeah, Chicago, I'm I'm really biased. I mean, you know, maybe on the coast would be better to study sharks probably, but yeah, Chicago's where it's at, man. The
0: mail is good now. You can, you can get the samples shipped. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. I I can relate to this. People always ask me like, well, where, you know, are you going to buy a house? Where are you, where do you want to live? And I'm like, I have no idea. (laughs) Wherever the the research takes me. That's the thing, right? That's
1: that's (laughs) the thing is you, you know, in, in this field, you often just have to go where you can get the job. Right. So it's, Sometimes not for the, the faint of heart, that's for sure. It can be, it can be a difficult road sometimes, but man, if, you, if you're passionate about it, it is so worth it. So
0: if money were not an issue, what's one project you would love to work on?
1: Ooh, wow. Probably, probably sequencing multiple genomes from multiple lemon sharks from multiple locations and just kind of really delve into what the genetic differences are between the different sites. Um, That to me would be a really interesting project to look at. Wow, that sounds really nerdy. I guess it is really nerdy, but that's, you know, as a geneticist, I guess that's kind of my passion, right? So yeah, so like kind of delving into the genome at these different sites and trying to figure out like what the differences are between these populations.
0: Yeah, I've seen studies like that before, not genetics related, but you know, Growth related or population composition. So, delving even deeper into genetic differences would be really cool.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So this is the last one. If there was one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be?
1: Wow, that's a good one too. Um, one point or principle, like the entire popul- the entire world population.
0: Yes. <sighs> a lot of pressure.
1: Yeah, I think the importance, having appreciation for the importance of biodiversity, I think is really something that people say they care about it. But then when it comes time to vote on those issues, they don't necessarily vote on those issues. So I think more of an appreciation for the importance of biodiversity.
0: Well, Kevin, thank you for coming on the podcast today.
1: Thank you. That was, uh, that was super fun.
0: Yeah, it was a pleasure hearing about all of your work, um, past and present. If people want to find out more information or get a hold of you, how would they do that?
1: Um, my email address can be found on the Field Museum's website, uh, fieldmuseum.org. And uh, yeah, drop me an email. Love to hear from you.
0: If any listener would like to get a hold of me or any of the other hosts, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Pod, or via email at feedback at the fisheriespodcast.com. Um, I want to remind everybody that, you know, if you have questions about the Bibini Shark Lab or what it's like to live there, volunteer there, I'm always happy to answer questions about that. And I'm sure Dr. Feldheim can answer those kinds of questions as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast merch available on Teespring. I'm Elise, and thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast. Remember, appreciate biodiversity,